Well, today is the very last week of this series, Live No Lies. And I have loved being able to prepare for this series and teaching this series because I think that the message of this this book, Live No Lies, by John Mark Comer that we base the series on, I think the message of it is something that's so crucial for us to receive and understand in the season that we're living in as people right now. Because we are in the middle of a war. There is a war being waged against us. And you can't always see it. Uh, It may be fought on a battlefield that's not always obvious. But you can feel it inside every single day. Every time you turn on the news and you have a feeling of dread about whatever they're about to say, you're experiencing the results of this war. Whenever a, a co-worker finds out that you go to church or that you're a Christian, you get all kind of butterflies in your tummy as they start asking you questions. You're experiencing the war that we are living in. There, there are so many times during the day where we have to quietly question whether or not we believe the right thing or doing the right thing or moving in the right way where we even wonder if we are who we think we are or we have all these different lies in our heads about who we are not. We're experiencing the results of the war that we are living in. There is a war being waged against your peace, being waged against your place in this world, being waged against the future that you want, being waged against the happiness that you desire. And it's happening every single day, and it's happened to every single person ever since the Garden of Eden. We've talked uh, a lot over the last few weeks about Genesis chapter 3, this story of the fall of man. And it's so important for us to continue to learn and internalize this story because this is the place where it all began, where the battle was first waged that is going on today. And the same tactics that appear in Genesis chapter 3 in the first five verses, the same tactics that we see in those first five verses are the same tactics that we are facing when we wake up every single day. Let's look at it again. Verse uh, two, it says, verse one, it says, he said to the woman, speaking of the devil, the devil said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the first move right there is he gets her to question what God is saying. He, she knows what he said. The devil wants to wave doubt, weave doubt into what it meant. He says, did God really say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the certain, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden. God said we could do that. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent said to the woman, surely you'll not die. Now he's calling into question whether or not God is telling the truth. Surely you'll not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, calling into question the motives of God, and even what truth is altogether, and even suggesting that if you do this, if you make these choices for yourself, if you give in to what we all know you want, and pursue that thing, and do what's, what, what you know is right, what you can feel is right, it'll be you that gets to decide what is right and wrong. It'll be you that gets to decide what is good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll be your own God. And then you'll be satisfied. And this lie that the devil tells in the garden results in Adam and Eve taking this fruit and receiving the justice, the punishment of sin. And it brings us into the same battle that we're fighting here today. And these lies, 
He lies about truth. He lies about the truth. He lies about Eve. He lies about God. These lies began this war. And this war is with these lies and their allies. And it's fought on these three specific fronts. The three fronts for the lies that we live are deceptive ideas. Lies. The devil brings the, the devil's only ever had one strategy. Lies. His native language is lies. He lies. These deceptive ideas. It begins with these ideas planted deep in the corners of your mind. Planted there by the same force planting them in the mind of Eve, the devil. He says, did God really say? And he tells her, God is just trying to keep good things away from you. And she believes it. and She lives it. And the devil is telling you the same lies today. He lies about God. He tells you that God is only trying to keep you from having fun. That he's trying to keep you from really being yourself. That he's, he doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's working against you. That he just wants to control you. And then he lies about you. He tells you that you're the best judge of right and wrong, not God. He has you questioning if you should trust God at all or trust the Bible or trust people that are reading the Bible to you. Or he has you question who you are. He lies about your identity, your self-worth, your position in this world, who you were made to be, all these things. He lies. And then he fills you with insecurities and doubt about yourself. And his lies become woven into the fabric of your self-identity and they're bound around you like chains. So the first front in this war is the deceptive ideas of the devil. Then it's the disordered desires of your flesh. The disordered desires of your flesh. So it feels like our own flesh is waging a war against us because it is. We have these desires inside of us that were put there for good, but they've been disordered by these lies, these deceptive ideas of the devil, and now they work against us. God created us to enjoy sexuality and the in, uh, within the intimacy of a marriage. But the devil disorders those desires and tells us that all we need is gratification by whatever means is available to us. And the result is shame and brokenness and pain and an inability to develop true intimacy. We see it in Genesis 3, every single one of those consequences. God created us to be people of deep feeling. And so he gave us this wide range of emotion and desire. We are complicated people. But when our desires get disordered, it results in greed and anger and envy and jealousy and rage and a whole host of other things. And this drives us down a pathway of blame that makes us feel even emptier on the inside. God created us to be spiritual. We have a desire and a hunger for the spiritual. Part of our creation is spirit, both flesh and spirit put together. And so we desire the spiritual and it's put there for good. But when that desire gets disordered, we search for spiritual fulfillment in this world through philosophy, drugs, other religions, idols, idols, religious idols and non-religious idols, uh, American idols. We're all out there worshiping <laughs> Carrie Underwood. This is what happens. We replace our actual desire for the spiritual with all these other spiritual pursuits that never fulfill us in the way we were made to be fulfilled. 
And because none of these other disordered desires result in the kind of fulfillment that you were created to enjoy, we just keep searching for more. We're starving for it and we keep feeding it. And we just keep feeding it because the more we feed it, the hungrier we get and the more we keep searching to be fulfilled. But our desires are disordered. And the deceptive ideas of the enemy drive these desires further and further out of order until we feel like Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing." I know the right thing to do, but I just keep doing this other thing because it's what I feel like I have to do. And the enemy uses these disordered desires to rob us of our peace, and they're all amplified and affirmed because they're normalized in a sinful society. So we're living in this sinful society that normalizes all these other things because everyone else is fighting the same war. And in this battle, our our deceptive ideas of the devil are partnering with the disordered desires of our flesh and normalized in a sinful society in the very world we live in. Because our culture, our society, our world is fallen. Through social contagion and the pressure of our society, our moral compass spins and changes with every generation. As a culture, we decide what is right and wrong. We decide who is in and who is out. We are the judge of ourselves. And in this sinful society, I want it, and everyone is doing it, comes together to feed our disordered desires driven by these deceptive ideas. And so here we are, just as Paul says as he continues in Romans chapter 7. I find it to be law. I find it to be a law that... When I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This battle that we are waging is tearing us apart from the inside out. And we don't know what to do about it. We're living in these lies, and it's, just, it's destroying us, just like Paul talks about here. So who will save us? How do we win a war being waged on all sides? So many of us, we want more out of this life. We want peace. We want joy. We want satisfaction. But instead, we're living in these lies because our enemy's strategy is working. Deceptive ideas that lead to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So today, as we close out this series, I just want to give you a threefold strategy to fight back and live no lies. I believe you can live in this world and that you can enjoy a life that is filled with truth and blessing. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are going to have suffering and pain. Maybe even as followers of Jesus, we have more of these things than others. But you can experience them and still experience the joy of Christ. And you can experience the suffering and pain and still receive a hope that nothing else on creation 
has access to. That you can experience the hardship of a broken world and still have a peace inside of you that surpasses understanding. And so a threefold strategy to help you accomplish that and live in that and fight back and live no lies. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He wants you to think that he's got your best interests in mind. It's what he believed. It's what we live like we believe constantly. But the truth is, he is only here to steal and kill and destroy. To destroy the blessings in your life. To steal the peace from your heart. And to kill the very lifeblood that you were made to enjoy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's God's dream for you. His dream for you is to live an abundant life, to understand in your very fibers of your being that there is more for you and that you have a purpose and that there is a good life ahead of you. Galatians chapter five, verse one says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, his desire for us is to be free of this war, this battle, the strategies of our enemy. And so here's how we do it. Here's how we get there. Uh, Live no lies. Number one is this. First thing that we've got to do if we don't want to live lies is we've got to learn the truth. We have to learn the truth. We have to learn how to see it. We have to have it. It has to be woven into your soul. You have to have the truth buried in you so deep that no lie can penetrate the spaces where the truth fills. You will never know the difference between a lie and the truth if you don't have a firm understanding of the truth. You have to. If you don't know the foundation for truth and why it is the truth, how could you possibly know when you're being lied to? So if we want to live no lies, we have to know the truth that we have to plant ourselves in. The devil plants deceptive ideas in our hearts and our minds about God, about ourselves, and about truth itself. And so we need to know, without a shadow of a doubt, who God is, who we are, and what the truth is and where it is defined. Knowing God, the first one, is a lot easier than you might think. It's not as hard as you think. It's not complicated. Uh, God is not some cosmic entity far away and out of reach. He is not beyond the realm that you're living in to the point where you, you can't ever really get near him. God is not far from you. He is close to you. He is as close as the air you are breathing. And his desire is to be known by you. He wants to know you and to be known by you. He's a relational God. We see it in his very nature. We see God's nature exists as a father and a son and a Holy Spirit, three parts, one God, relational in his very being. And so we know that he desires relationship with us. And we know that because he's given us a means to know him that is unbelievable. The Holy Scriptures, the Bible, give us the means to know God, to know his character, to know what he's like, to know what he wants to know what he desires, to know how he sees us. We have the ability to know all of these things because of the Bible. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. 
The sum of your word is true. All the Bible put together shows us one clear picture of what truth is and who God is. It reveals him to us. God's character and intentions are revealed through the whole story of Scripture. But one passage in particular is actually really special. Uh, because he tells us what to expect from him every single time we encounter him. It's this crucial moment in the Bible where God gives himself this proper introduction to humanity. It's the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. It tells us that this is one of the most important things in all of Scripture is this one moment where God declares his attributes. It was normal for a ruler a long time ago, to declare their name and then their attributes. You even see it in like medieval shows. You know, the, the, a herald might declare the, the ruler's name and then all their attributes, the, the mighty, benevolent, all these different things about this king and this ruler. Well, God has a moment where he declares his name and the most important attributes of who he is. The defining characteristics that make him who he is. That He tells humanity who he is in this special moment. And it begins by declaring his name. And God does have a name. Actually, Comer's got a great book called God Has a Name about this passage. And it's really, it's an, it's an interesting theology read if you look into that sort of thing. But anyways, God's name is Yahweh. And we don't know if we're saying it right or not because it's ancient Hebrew language is a little bit more complicated. And, but Yahweh is his name and it's translated usually to the Lord in the Bible. But the Lord is in his name. It's a title. And it's translated that way because there's not an English word for Yahweh. And so when you look at NIV, this, this verse will begin, the Lord, the Lord. But really he's saying his name, which he's saying Yahweh, Yahweh. Exodus chapter 34, he's speaking to Moses. And it says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Order is really important in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew language, order would indicate importance. And so God is listing out his attributes and the things that are most important about him for you to know all the way down. And really in general, the most important attributes of God moving down this list. It's super important. And the very first thing that he needs you to know about him is not that he's omnipotent, that he's all powerful and can zap anybody anytime or that he's omniscient and he knows everything and he knows about that thing that you hope he doesn't know but he does and he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent he's everywhere all the we think about the omnis when we think about the characteristics of God but that's not how he describes himself the very first thing that he needs you to know about him is that he's compassionate his compassion is his defining characteristic I am a compassionate and gracious God. He is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's the funnest part. I'll get to that. He's compassionate. He's filled with grace. He's not a bully on an anthill with a magnifying glass. I just think sometimes we get that image trapped in our heads when we think about God. We think about him as the almighty zapper of things, taking away more than he gives, but that is not his character. He is a compassionate 
and gracious God. That's what defines him. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And he's just. And I know that we see verses like this and we think, I don't like that. I don't want God to be like that. But justice is important to us. We just want to be the ones that get to decide what justice is and who it is for. But I would put to you that our Father and the Maker of Heaven is a far greater judge of justice than you or I ever will be. And this passage tells us that He is a just God and that He doesn't let the guilty go unpunished, but that His justice has a limitation. It says to the third and fourth generation, it stops at a certain point. Why? Because even here, as He speaks to Moses, the beginning of this church, He knows that Jesus is coming and that his justice is going to hit a stopping point for us and it's going to be transferred to someone else. It says that he maintains his love to thousands, a number without end, that his love goes on forever and that while his justice is never canceled, it does have an ending point. And so this is the character of God. This is who he is. I remember growing up in church and I just thought God is a bunch of rules and all he wants is to control me. I, I just, I remember thinking about some of the, you know, grumpier deacons at our church that were mad at me for not wearing closed-toed shoes to a church service and thinking, if this is who's been chosen to lead the church, this must be what God is like. Because every time I see one of them, all I can think about is how I'm not living up to their standards. And so that must be what it is like to be in front of God. Never quite good enough, never quite welcome in, never quite living up to the standards, always just waiting for me to screw up again. And that was what I believed until I opened the Bible for the first time. I was 21 years old the first time I read the Bible. I had had it shouted at me my entire life. I had never read it on my own until I was 21. And when I opened it, I read it cover to cover in a couple months. And what you see when you, when you absorb the Bible that quickly is the bigger picture. And you can see the nature and the character of God so clearly when you consume it that quickly. There is a pattern that exists from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again. And in the Old Testament, it's repetitive. It goes, God offers relationship with his people and then the people rebel. And then God brings justice, and then he brings redemption, and then he offers relationship with his people, and then the people rebel. And then God brings justice, and then redemption, and relationship with his people, and then the people rebel. And then God brings justice, and then redemption, and relationship with his people, and then the people rebel. And then God brings justice, and redemption, over and over and over. It's the whole Bible. I just summed it up. All the prophets are warning them, telling them, hey, God's going to bring justice if you don't bring relationship and the people still rebel and the prophets are like told you so here's what's going to happen and now here's God's redemption and you can have relation it's the whole old testament on this repeat pattern and then you get to the book of Matthew and here you see that God said is enough is enough the pattern shall be broken all I desire from my children and my creation is relationship no more pattern. He brings redemption once and for all. And that is the nature of God. Here, in the pages of Scripture, we see revealed his character. The enemy is going to just try to convince you that he is nothing like what he is. But that's why God has given you a, a 
pillar of truth that you can learn from and study and read and live in every single day so that you can know who he really is. His character is revealed in scripture. So that's who God is. Don't let the devil convince you otherwise. Now you've also got to know the truth about you. Because the truth about you matters to God as well. And once you've firmed up your belief in God, the devil's really going to go after this truth about you. He's going to start poking holes in what you believe about yourself, what you think is true about you, where you think you fit in or where you don't, what you're capable of, what purpose might align for you, where you belong in this world. He's going to tell you lie after lie after lie after lie. You're not good enough. Your life is meaningless. You can't be trusted. But God says otherwise. Psalm 139, the psalmist understood it. And he says, You formed my inner parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, i.e. me. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You're created by design, on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. And your God has known you better than you have ever known yourself and still desires you and desires relationship with you. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3, that you are God's temple? The spirit of God dwells within you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God has got your back. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are holy. Galatians 4, you're no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through Christ. John 1, 12, to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the scriptures say about you, behold, the new has come. Don't you ever let the devil tell you that you do not have the value and the worth that God says you have. He says that you are worthy of sacrifice and that his desire for you is to be in relationship with you like a good father and his son or daughter. Adopted into sonship, you are one of the children of God. That's who you are. Don't fall to the deceptive ideas of who you are. The Bible goes on and on and on, just like that. All right, finally, we need to know the truth about truth. Our society is constantly changing what truth means, and I believe there's only one reliable source of truth. Like Psalm 119 says, the sum of God's word is truth. I spoke at length about this in the Renew series a few weeks ago, uh, but we learn what the truth is by studying Scripture and forming our beliefs from the Bible up. The Bible is the source of truth. 
John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. There's a common thread in putting out these lies and learning the truth. It is the scriptures. If you want to live no lies, it is vital. It is crucial that you live in the truth of scripture, that you know it, that you study it, that you read it every single day, that you memorize it, that you bring it into your heart and allow it to live there, build a foundation out of it and know the truth. 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says you can demolish arguments and every pretension that set itself up against the knowledge of God. Again, the knowledge of God includes God's knowledge about you. And set up all these, you can demolish these arguments and lies and we take captive every single thought and make it obedient, obedient to Christ. There is a great ancient manuscript uh, by a guy named Evagrius. It's like a demon slaying handbook and it is the most simple process. I started using it 14 years ago, have used it almost every day since. And it's like this, whenever I am confronted with a lie that I am tempted to believe in, I write it down in a journal, I circle it, and I put a truth underneath it. I say, here's the lie. And the lie is, I'm not qualified to do this. Here's the truth. You are a chosen people. You are called and created, you know, botched that, but you get the idea. You write down a scripture passage that tells you the truth. And over time, what you'll do is train your brain to win that, because the devil's really only got a small bag of tricks. He's going to tell you the same lies over and over and over and over again. And the more you circle those lies and replace them with truth, you'll start to do it automatically. The same lie will come back and you'll be like, well, actually, I memorized this verse about this, and I'll just blow that out of the water. And so you can do that. You can use the truth to defeat the lies. All right, here's the second thing. I promise these next two go by real quick. Uh, second thing is it's simple. You've got to, if you want to fix your disordered desires, you just have to develop discipline. Develop discipline. You get your, or, your order corrected for your desires. You get your desires back in the right place. If we're going to defend against the second enemy of peace, disordered desires, we have to develop real discipline. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city without walls, broken into and left without walls. In those days, a wall meant that the city was safe and secure. Without walls, they were susceptible to being invaded and stolen from and uh, taken over by somebody else. Well, your self-control does that for you. It prevents you from being invaded by the lies of the enemy and taken over by them uh, with disordered desires. Self-control. Uh, that's what self-control and discipline do for us. In order for us to develop self-control, we have to learn and understand what it meant when Jesus said that we have to die to our flesh or even die to ourself. He spoke about this over and over and over again. We see it all in all the gospels. Luke chapter 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Mark 8, 34, calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 1624, Matthew 1624. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 1038. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Luke 1427. Who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I wonder what he's trying to communicate here. I wish he would have been more clear about it. 
Now, you got to understand that to the first audience of this phrase that Jesus was saying, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. This is a terrifying thing to try to understand because Jesus has not been crucified yet. It's not a part of their religion. Instead, a cross just represents a horrible thing they had to pass on the way into the city. On the way into Jerusalem and any of the capital cities in the Roman Empire, they would have crucifixes on the outside of it, just outside the city walls with people dying on them that you had to walk past every time you entered the city so that you would be reminded who is in control. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Why? In Galatians 5.24, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus was communicating that if we really want to know him and follow him, we're going to have to, these disordered desires that become our flesh, that drive the decisions we make and the life we live, we have to put them to death. It can't be that we keep them around a little bit, that, you know, we keep moving forward with our desires out of whack. We pursue whatever sexual gratification we desire. We go after money and greed and fill our life with possessions. We do all these things that we just want to do and follow Jesus. It is not how it works. Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you live that way. Paul says, we've got to crucify these things. And so how do we do it? Well, a big part of it is prayer and worship and studying scriptures so that the Holy Spirit's power grows within you. Paul continues in that passage, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit grows inside of you the more you spend time with him and allows you to say no to the disordered desires of your flesh and to correct them and put them in the right order so that you can actually benefit from the reason God created you with those desires in the first place. But that's hard. And the Holy Spirit is going to help us and it's going to come alongside of us. But it's, it's a difficult thing to understand. You know, in those days, their culture was obsessed with self-fulfillment, just like ours. But Jesus was calling them to the self-denial, to just put an end to these things. And that is hard to swallow because we're obsessed with the idea of self-fulfillment, the pursuit of happiness, the search for meaning. But one of the deceptive ideas of the devil is that in order to be fulfilled, we only fulfill ourselves, ourself, the desires of our flesh. Jesus wants self-fulfillment for us, but he knows it looks different than the world says. And so the Holy Spirit helps us to begin to transform our desires, but you're always going to be tempted because the whole world around you is telling you this is what happiness looks like. It's this one thing. So then what do you do? Well, you have to build character and develop self-control. And you build character in quiet moments, alone, confronted with decisions. You build character in moments when you're alone with God and you're pouring yourselves into his scripture, into worship, into prayer. You build character in accountability, which we'll talk about accountability in a moment. But there is another powerful tool that helps you develop discipline and character. And it's simpler than you think. Fasting. Fasting will help you develop self-control and discipline to reorder your desires. And I don't mean giving up TV for a couple weeks and I don't mean turning off your Instagram account after you make 
a long post about turning off your Instagram account and then look and see how many people comment on how you're turning off your Instagram account. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about don't eat, fasting, the absence of food in your body. I have, a, a, as a pastor, meetings from time to time with men who are trying to overcome struggles with pornography. And in those conversations, the first question that I ask is, have you ever tried fasting? And they're like, fasting from pornography? Yes, that's why I'm here. I'm trying, I need better help than that. Don't do it is not the answer I needed. And I said, no, I mean, do you ever not eat food? And they're like, what are we, what, no? no? Of course not. I get hungry every three hours and I feed me. And I said, well, if you can master something that your body actually physically needs to survive, if you can develop enough discipline to say no and to feed your spirit while physically starving your flesh, if you can learn to replace a hunger pain of a need for food with prayer and pour into the spirit, you're going to grow a self-discipline inside of you that's going to allow you to be able to say no to other things as well. If you can say something no to something that you need to survive, you're going to learn how to say no to something that you want. Fasting, simpler than you think. Develop the discipline of fasting if you want better self-control. Now, here's the shameless plug. This Tuesday night at 6.30, I'll be teaching an entire message on fasting and how to do it for practicing the way. If you don't know what practicing the way is, it is our discipleship model. Uh, it is how we, we're learning the practices of Jesus, and then we have a community where we're living them out. And so, um, once a month on the last Tuesday of the month, we meet together uh, to talk through uh, a different practice that we're going to be living out with our community, with our small group during the following month. This one is going to be fasting. And so this Tuesday night at 630, even if you're not doing Practicing the Way with us and you have more questions about this, I'm out of time today and I can't tell you any more about it today. So come on out uh, Tuesday night. I'll tell you all about fasting there, 630 p.m. at Arden First Baptist church. Fasting is a great way to develop discipline. And then it all comes together. And so we're going to learn the truth to fight the lies. We're going to develop discipline to reorder the desires of our flesh. And then it all comes together when we find the right community. When we find the right community. Uh, we're fighting this war against the devil, the flesh, the world, and they're using deceptive ideas and disordered desires normalized in a sinful society to steal our peace. And so what are we supposed to do about it? Well, last week we talked about the world and social contagion. Culture, it spreads. And in the wrong environment, it's disordered desires that spread through the culture. Things that make us believe that horrible things are okay. If everyone else around us is saying it's okay, then we'll just adapt that as our culture. I want it and everybody else is doing it, comes together to let us live in the lie. Social contagion, the spreading of culture. But in the right environment, a different kind of culture can spread. Social contagion is inevitable. We can't erase it, but it can be harnessed for good. It can help us. We can find an environment that helps us live no lies. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
how do we spread something else? How do we spread serving one another? How do we spread the denial of myself so that I can so that I can serve God and serve you and do it wholly? How do we spread love? How does love spread from one person to another real, genuine, not what this world calls love? No, the kind of love that is that is from heaven, that is real, that makes people feel seen and wanted and cared for. What is the answer to spreading love and good works? He says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church has a lot of purposes a place and a people to worship God alongside, a place to enact the commission of Christ and bring hope into a city, a place to serve others and live your purpose. But it's also this great community where we can stir one another up to love and good works, where we can encourage one another all the more as we see the, the day drawing near, where we can make each other better when we are operating as we should through accountability and vulnerability and a pursuit of the ways of Jesus and we work together to live in truth. You know, this is so important with accountability because accountability will help you develop discipline and it will help you to get your desires in the right position. But accountability does not work unless vulnerability is there. Because it's just so easy to lie about stuff you want to hide. So you've got to be in a space where it's normal to be vulnerable. Really, truly vulnerable. Where, where it's okay to admit that parts of yourself, parts of your life are ugly and need work. And where you know people are going to love you anyways. That's the kind of environment we need. You've got to look for the right community one that holds the Bible in absolute authority and builds doctrine from the scripture up, not based on culture or what's popular in other churches. You've got to find a church that lives in humility, honoring God and God only, and serving one another. You've got to find one that promotes vulnerability. You need a church not where everybody gets into the parking lot and puts their mask on so that they can go in and convince everyone everything is great and everything is good and my life is perfect and look at how great my kids are and everything is perfect and everything is awesome and look at me, I am awesome. And then they get back in the car and just re-enter the brokenness of their reality. And that's not the right kind of church. The right kind of church is one where you bring the brokenness of your reality into the spaces where the people are. And the people say, here's the brokenness of my reality. Together, let us work closer towards being made whole. A space where vulnerability is the culture. Because there, in that place, you can actually start to have accountability. Because you can trust that they're going to tell you the truth and you're going to tell them the truth. Because you both know how big of a mess you are already. Vulnerability where people serve one another. A place fixated on real community 
where we want to be known by somebody else and go through life alongside others. I would put forward that this is that community. I know that our church is not perfect. No church is. I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. We've dropped some balls, made some mistakes. But vulnerability is our culture. It's our strength. It's one of our core values. We believe in real accountability. We believe in encouraging one another on towards good works. We believe in working together to learn the ways of Jesus and live them out. I believe that in this space, you have a better chance than you have anywhere else to live no lies and live in the truth that God designed you to exist in. That you can find those things here if you're willing to look. But you've got to go all in. You've got to submit yourself to it. You've got to become a part of the community. You've got to be on the dream team. You've got to be in the small groups. Join practicing the way. Go to the events. Be a part of the community. And you can live in a new truth and a new level of satisfaction that you didn't even know was possible for you. I believe that even though a war is being waged against your peace, you can still have that peace. That you can be happy. That you can enjoy a good life here as we work towards bringing the kingdom of heaven into reality. And I believe this is how we get there. If you're in here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're ready to have one to begin this journey, then all you have to do is accept the gift that's been offered. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Would you just pray this with me? Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for the mistakes I've made, for trying to do it on my own. I just ask God that you would enter into my heart and forgive me. I believe in you. And everything that I am from this day on, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.